Hey, Keystoners. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. So I have some really exciting news. I have set up a merch store for KSOM on Etsy. Right now, there's only one item available for purchase in the merch store, and that is a Keystone State of Mind license plate. This is a standard size U.S. license plate, and it fits on most vehicles. It's made of high quality aluminum, and it's really cool. So go check it out. These are $20 plus tax and free shipping to the continental U.S. Now, why did I choose a license plate for my first piece of merch? Well, my logo is a license plate. It's based on the old school Pennsylvania plates that we used to have, the blue and yellow here in PA. And it's something really unique. Like, I've never heard of another podcast having a license plate for merch. So that's why I went with that. And I'd love it if you guys go check it out. Even if you don't want to purchase it, just go look at it because it's really cool. And I will put the Etsy store link in the show notes. Also, you can just go to Etsy and search Keystone State of Mind or KSOM, and it'll take you right to it. I did a little research, and there are only 20 states that only require a rear license plate. So if you live in one of those 20 states, you can just put your KSOM license plate right on the front. But if you live in the other 30 states that require you to have two license plates on your car, well, you can just hang it up in your house or put it in the rear window of your car. It would look really cool as a sign, like hanging anywhere. So anyways, go check it out. Enough about that. Moving on. I have a bunch of shout outs. I've heard from so many people with words of encouragement and topic suggestions. So I want to say hey to George, Christina, Melissa, and Matt. Also to Bill Bickerstaff and Skunkbat, who left a five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts. And I also have a huge shout out to Robin Warder. He is the host of a podcast called The Trail Went Cold. He played my promo on one of his episodes, and I've gotten a lot of traction from that. So I just wanted to say a big thank you to Robin and to let you guys know about his podcast. It is a true crime podcast that focuses on unsolved disappearances and murders. So if you liked my unsolved episodes about Jonathan Luna and Ray Gricar, then you'll love his show. And I totally recommend to go check it out. Again, that's called The Trail Went Cold. So thank you so much, everybody. You all rock. Awesome Keystoners. Thanks again. Now, if you guys follow me on social media, then you know I have gotten my first hater. I got a message from an older gentleman, looked to be in his 50s or 60s, who really didn't care for my swearing, especially because I'm a woman. And it's off-putting and disturbing, he said, or, you know, in so many words. 
And I let him know that, you know, he can actually just go get fucked. So whatever. But I don't mind having a hater. That's cool. That means I'm moving up in the world, right? And so many people commented on the post that I made on social media, letting me know that they love my swearing and my terrible trucker mouth. So thanks, guys. Fucking love you, too. Today's topic was recommended to me by Elizabeth. So I want to say a big thank you because I'd never even heard of this story. And it's really important to Pennsylvania history. So I'm so glad you brought it to my attention. Thank you, Elizabeth. Okay, enough chatter. Let's get into the story. But first, we have to get into a Keystone State of Mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice-cold can of Keystone Light while I tell you today's story. And it's a pretty sad one, so I'm going to need it. On January 13th, 1908, nearly 350 people packed into the Rhodes Opera House in Boyertown, Pennsylvania to enjoy a play. In the middle of the third act, a series of events occurred that culminated in the deadliest fire in Pennsylvania history. 170 playgoers and one firefighter were killed. This incident led to reforms and legislation for public safety that are still in place to this day. Boyertown is a small town in eastern Pennsylvania, and it's about 50 miles northwest of Philadelphia. In 1908, Boyertown had about 2,000 residents, and it was a bustling little village. The town's economy was doing great. There were two cigar factories and a casket company that kept Boyertown residents employed as well as a bank and a hardware store, and of course, the Rhodes Opera House. The townspeople were a happy group, and everybody was pretty tight-knit. Charles Spots, the editor of the Berks County Democrat, wrote at the end of 1907 that, quote, the death rate was small and the birth rate large. No epidemic visited us and none of our people met with any serious misfortune, for all of which we are duly thankful and proud." No one could have imagined the tragedy that was going to befall the town just weeks after this was written. So let's talk about the Rhodes Opera House. It was located on the second floor of a three-story brick building on East Philadelphia Street in Boyertown. On the first floor was a bank, an insurance company, and a hardware store. And on the third floor was a meeting hall. This building was built in 1885 and was owned by Dr. Thomas J.B. Rhodes. And he was also the president of the bank. Dr. Rhodes was a very prominent and well-liked figure in Boyertown. 
And I have no idea what kind of doctor he was. If he was the president of the bank, I doubt he's also like the town's pediatrician, but maybe. I have no clue. In 1869, Pennsylvania was the first state to pass legislation requiring that all public buildings that had two stories or more to have fire escapes. So the Rhodes Building did have fire escapes by law. The Rhodes Opera House was the place to go for the townspeople. It was operated and managed by Harriet Monroe, who was a playwright herself and a play director. When a new play would open at the Rhodes Opera House, everyone in town wanted tickets. The first night would always be sold out. January 13th, 1908 was opening night for a new show called The Scottish Reformation. This play was being put on by a local church, the St. John's Lutheran Church. And the 60-member cast was made up mostly of members of the church as well. And there were about 30 people who were the crew. The audience was made up of 252 residents of Boyertown, men, women, and children. Too many tickets were sold for opening night, so extra folding chairs had to be brought in. And this will come up in a little bit. It's important. Many of the town's most influential people were at this play, including Charles Spots, the editor of the Berks County Democrat that I quoted earlier. Also, the town's Burgess, which I think is like a mayor. His name was Daniel Kohler. And the reverend of the St. John's Lutheran Church, Reverend John G. Pearson. One notable person that was not in attendance was the Opera House manager, Harriet Monroe. She was actually out of town scouting other plays to bring to the Rhodes Opera House. Everyone in the audience was not only excited to watch the play, but they were also excited to check out a kind of new technology that had just come to town. The Stereopticon, or sometimes called the Magic Lantern. So this thing is like an old-timey projector. I had to look it up because I'd never heard of anything like it. The Stereopticon was invented in 1860, but it wasn't really widely available until the turn of the century. And I say widely available, that's even a stretch, because a small town was lucky to have one. The Rhodes Opera House did have a stereopticon or magic lantern, and it was used to show images related to the play. So for playgoers in 1908, this was really exciting. It was almost like seeing what we would call a movie. And this was brand new technology to small town folk. So it was a big deal. The stereopticon worked like you would think a projector would work, you know, a glass slide with a light source behind it. This light source would either be like a candle or an oil lamp. 
However, the stereopticon also used very flammable gases to project the image. So as you can imagine, this is a very volatile and sophisticated piece of equipment that needs to be operated by somebody who knows what they're fucking doing. We're talking candles and oil lamps and flammable gases right next to each other. This is not something that any Joe Schmo off the street ought to be playing around with. The Rhodes Opera House did have a professional projectionist, but he was not at the show either. He was actually off with Harriet Monroe scouting new plays. So Harriet brought in an inexperienced guy, kind of just a kid, to run the Magic Lantern for opening night of the Scottish Reformation. That's actually really hard to say after a couple of beers because I just had to redo the Scottish Reformation like three times. So this young guy, inexperienced projectionist, his name was Harry Fisher. And Harriet Monroe did give him a little bit of training on the Stereopticon. Only a couple days worth of training with the regular projectionist for the Opera House. The standard for Stereopticon training was a nine-month apprenticeship with a professional projectionist. And Harry Fisher got like three days. So the first two acts of the play went off without a hitch. Everybody loved it. The actors were doing great. The Stereopticon added a super cool aspect to the show. And Harry Fisher was doing okay. But during the final act, he made a mistake. He opened the wrong valve, which released gases into the room and also made a very loud hissing sound. This noise startled the audience. So everybody kind of turns around to look and people start getting up. It must have been loud enough that it seemed dangerous because people immediately started to panic. And during the panic, one of the oil lamps that helped to light the stage was knocked over. The oil spilled out and immediately caught the room on fire. Now, this would have been bad enough, but the stereopticon had now released flammable gases into the room. So within seconds, it was a giant fireball. Even the air caught on fire. That's how survivors described it. And complete pandemonium ensued. Obviously, everybody's running for the doors and the windows. And there were double doors leading out of the opera house but only one would open and it opened inside rather than opening out. And like I said, there were fire escapes, but the windows were over three feet off the ground. So people were having to open the window and then climb out. It took time. Only one person could go through it at once. And remember we talked about those folding chairs? 
Well, the regular chairs that were always in the opera house, they were bolted down. So it was easy enough to climb over them. But the folding chairs became an obstacle. People were getting tangled up in these chairs as they're trying to run for the door. Parents are grabbing their children and husbands are dragging their wives to get to the door, but they couldn't get out. Everybody trying to get out at once, they just jammed themselves in there. A survivor named Frank Cullen said, quote, It was a battle in which only the strong had a chance to escape, end quote. Another survivor, Reuben Stover, said, quote, It was a terrible sight, and I shall carry the recollection as long as I live. Once the crowd began to fight its way towards the doors, no power on earth could have saved all the lives. But I believe that if the men had not lost control of themselves, the loss of life would have been very small. End quote. So people's panic only made this situation worse. People began jumping out of the second story windows, hoping to fall onto the awnings below. And most of these people were badly injured with broken arms, broken legs, fractured skulls. So all of the injuries did not just come from the fire. Within minutes of the blaze beginning, the fire department was notified. Now, they did not think that they had time to hook the horses up to their carts. So instead, they decided to just drag them by hand. And this turned out to be a devastating idea because as the cart got going down the hill, they lost control. And this is how that firefighter was killed. He was actually crushed by the fireman's cart. This was 18-year-old John Graver. And his little sister, Lottie, was at the play that night. And she also died in the fire. So the Graver family lost two of their children. Once the Boyertown Fire Company's cart was destroyed, they then had to wait for neighboring towns' fire departments to come and help. And these fire departments were not on the scene until 11.30 p.m. So we're talking a couple of hours. By this time, the building was a raging inferno. And they were not able to get the fire under control until after 4 a.m. As soon as day broke that next morning, hundreds of people were crowding around the ashes of what once was the Rhodes Building wanting answers, wanting to find out if their loved ones had survived. Boyertown only had two police officers. So Burgess Daniel Kohler, who did survive the blaze, had to bring in constables from Redding to help control the crowds. Berks County Coroner Robert Strausser was brought in to oversee the retrieval of the dead. And this was a huge job for him. We're talking 170 people burned beyond recognition that he was now tasked to identify and get back to their families. Strausser modeled 
his recovery effort after the San Francisco earthquake and subsequent fires in 1906. The recovery effort there was so thorough that most people were identified. So Robert Strausser used that same plan. His plan was this. They needed to set up temporary morgues to bring the bodies to. None of the loved ones were to be allowed in to identify any remains until all of the bodies were taken out and cataloged. Every body would be given a number and every possession, piece of jewelry, a handbag, things like that, they would also be given a number. In the meantime, the families of the dead were out of their minds. They were a mob outside of these temporary morgues. And not only just family members, also curious spectators and looky-loos, people from all over, not just from Boyertown, came to just watch. The press was there, obviously, even from as far as Oklahoma. The Rhodes Opera House fire was national news, and condolences came in from around the country and around the world even from the president of France at the time. The U.S. president, Teddy Roosevelt, personally sent his sympathies as well. Recovery of the bodies took five days. A majority of the bodies were actually found in like a five-foot-tall heap at what had been the exit. They actually had to use a crowbar to gently pry these bodies apart. Once the cataloging of the dead and their possessions was complete, the coroner personally would escort four families at a time into the temporary morgues to try and identify their loved ones. As the identification process was going on, a strange kind of mystery popped up. A woman was discovered wearing men's clothing, but also was wearing a signet ring. Instantly, everybody starts thinking this is some kind of spy or someone wanted by the police somewhere. Or maybe this woman was part of a gang of robbers that was trying to case the bank or something. When I first heard about this, I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? What was it? Well, you know what it was? It was a fucking mistake. It was somebody sent the wrong body. They sent the man's body in place of the woman's. And then this woman's body is now with men's possessions. It was just a mistake, basically. But the newspapers ran with it. Who is this mystery woman that's dressed as a man? And they automatically go to she's some kind of a robber or a spy or a wanted criminal. Maybe she just liked wearing dude's clothing, guys. Chill. But, of course, she didn't like wearing dude's clothing. It was a filing error. Anyways, this woman was identified as Rosa Diamond. And they had to get the wrong body back from the family, from the funeral home, and 
send them the correct body now. Roses. Whatever. Just a really weird part of the story, I guess. 25 people did go unidentified. And some of them, that was because nobody was left to claim their body. Their entire family died, as in the case of the Taggart family. When neighbors realized that their farm had gone unattended and their animals were not fed, that's when it came to light that they were part of these unidentified 25 bodies. There was just nobody left in the family to say who they were. The Boyertown Burial Casket Company had to go into overdrive to produce enough caskets for the dead. They actually had to add another shift. And some of the people who died in the Rhodes Opera House fire were actually employees of the casket company. So not only did they have to mourn their lost coworkers and friends, but now they have to work overtime to make sure that there's a casket available for them to be buried in. The reverend of the St. John's Lutheran Church did survive the fire, but he was badly burned and very injured. His daughter died in the fire and he could not go to the funeral because he was recovering. The pallbearers at his daughter's funeral actually carried her casket into his home so he could say goodbye. Most of the victims were buried in Boyerstown's Fairfield Cemetery, and it took four days to dig the graves. Reverends and pastors from neighboring towns had to be brought in to help with the services. A total of 50 children lost parents in the fire. 15 were orphaned, 21 lost their mothers, and 14 lost their fathers. People from all over the country were sending letters to Boyertown to say, we would love to adopt these orphan children. If we can help them, let us know. Burgess, Daniel Kohler, responded that they were grateful for the offer, but it was important to the people of Boyerstown to keep their children with them, to keep them in Boyerstown where they had grown up and with people they know. All the orphaned children were adopted by Boyertown residents. Also, a large trust fund was set up for them. Daniel Kohler appointed a relief committee that met three times a week to deal with the aftermath of the crisis and aid in making repairs. The total contributions given to the relief committee totaled $22,075. These contributions came in from local residents and local businesses. The town really did band together to help everyone that was injured or lost a loved one. But they also really wanted somebody to answer for this. Like, this had to be someone's fault, right? Who's the bad guy? Who can we blame here? An inquest was held that was officiated by six men. 
50 people were interviewed as witnesses. Some pretty disturbing facts came to light during this inquest, including the fact that Harry Fisher was not a qualified projectionist. Harriet Monroe was asked to testify at the inquest, but she never showed up. However, the regular projectionist that usually worked at the Rhodes Opera House, he did testify. And he actually read a letter that Harriet Monroe had sent to him asking him to lie under oath, saying that Harry Fisher was qualified and had months of training when he absolutely did not. Just after the fire, Harry Fisher said that he turned the wrong valve. But during the inquest, he changed his story and said that the hose broke and came loose, making it the machine's fault and not his, trying to deflect blame. I absolutely believe that Harry Fisher opened the wrong valve and that he lied at the inquest. But I still don't think it was his fault. He didn't have adequate training. Factory inspector Harry Bechtel was also interviewed. He testified that he had been to the Rhodes Opera House recently and had told Dr. Rhodes that he needed to lower the windows to the fire escapes. That was very important. It was something that he needed to do. And Dr. Rhodes just never did it. When asked, Harry Bechtel said, yeah, I told him that, but I never came to follow up. They asked him, why didn't you follow up? And he was really being defensive. And he said, I do not have time to come to this two-bit town. I have a lot of things to do in bigger cities. Well, this fucking pissed everybody off. Not the time to be insulting Boyertown, dude. Everybody was so mad and freaking out and wanted to kick his ass that the state police had to be called to escort him out of the building. And, of course, Dr. Rhodes denied that this recommendation was ever made. And in reality, that's all it was, a recommendation. There was not laws in place for these things. Yeah, it was the law that you had to have a fire escape, but there was no legal definition of where the windows needed to be. So even if Dr. Rhodes had admitted the guy had been there, he really didn't do anything that was against the law. At the end of the inquest, it was determined that four people were to blame. Harry Fisher for opening the wrong valve. Harriet Monroe for hiring Harry Fisher, an inexperienced projectionist. Dr. Rhodes for not following the factory inspector's recommendations, and Harry Bechtel, the factory inspector, for not coming back to follow up on his recommendations. It was recommended that these four people be criminally charged with a crime, but that never happened. The district attorney in Boyertown, Berks County, decided that he really didn't think he could bring this case to a jury because it really just was a terrible accident. Yes, bad decisions were made, but the district attorney just did not believe this was a criminal case. Surviving victims and victims' families also tried to bring 
civil cases up on these four people, tried to sue them, but none of those cases were successful either. So that's a bummer, but lots of good things came out of this. Building codes and fire codes, public safety legislation went in place the next year. Pennsylvania started it, but then all the other states followed. Things like doors in public buildings need to open outward, not inward. Fire escapes had to be constructed of fireproof materials like steel. Windows to the fire escape needed to be less than two feet off the ground so people could easily get out of it. Special laws geared towards opera houses and theaters also went into effect. They could not use kerosene or oil lamps as stage lighting anymore. These could not be on the stage. Projectionists now had to be certified. They can't just say, oh yeah, I've got training, I'm good. No, they had to have a certification to be able to run a stereopticon. Stage curtains had to be made of fire-resistant materials. And all of these buildings, they have to be retrofitted now. This, these are not grandfathered in. This is not just applying to new construction. All throughout the state of Pennsylvania, public buildings, especially theaters, were now required to bring their buildings up to code, and they couldn't be opened until they did. So the 171 victims who died January 13th, 1908, were not lost in vain. Those victims helped to bring about the laws that keep us safe when we're out in public. And I think that's pretty fucking cool. So what do you guys think? Should Harriet Monroe have gone to jail? Should Dr. Rhodes have been financially responsible to the families of the victims? Should Harry Fisher have been held accountable? Or Harry Bechtel? Who do you guys think was at fault? I would love to hear your thoughts. Go join, if you haven't already, the KSOM Keystoners Facebook group and tell me what you think. Also, I have been trying to be more active on Instagram. So go follow Keystone State of Mind on Instagram. And I'm trying to do Twitter, but I don't get it. Like, it's just, I don't understand Twitter. If somebody could help me with Twitter, I would love that. Am I old or I don't know. I just don't get it, I guess. And definitely don't forget to go check out the new Etsy store. That link will be in the show notes. So while you're out and about and in public spaces and you see these emergency exit signs and doors that open outward, be grateful and try to remember the victims of the Rhodes Opera House. And whatever you do, stay keystoned, my friends. Mm-hmm.